All right, good morning. Uh, welcome to another week of our being scattered together. Um, as I've said, we continue to watch and wait for updates on restrictions, gathering restrictions. But for the meantime, thanks for gathering with us this way. Um, as I uh, put in the email last week, I do want to say Happy New Year. Chunjie uh, Kwaila to uh, all our, those celebrating uh, Lunar New Year right now. And uh, thinking something of that, I didn't get into the prayer requests, but if you've been watching the news as well, I think let's be adding to our prayers right now, prayers for the people in Texas who uh, have just suddenly received a very Canadian winter and uh, all kinds of devastation and trouble coming right now um, for a state that is not used to cold and winter like that. Um, so let's be praying for the people of Texas right now as a church as well. We're going to come to a time in our word now. We're going to, in our service, we'll look at a passage from God's word. And we're going to talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them to Matthew chapter 5? Again, we're into this section of our sermon series now looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and these Beatitudes at the beginning. So today we're going to focus on verse 6, Matthew 5 and verse 6, but we're going to read our way into it beginning at verse 1. So let's look at this together. Matthew says this, Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and they opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And now today's passage we'll look at. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's God's word. Let me uh, pray for us just quickly, and then we'll dive into this uh, together. Uh, Spirit of God, we ask you, as we do each week, would you illumine the preaching of your word, open up our eyes and our ears and our minds, uh, shine your light into our darkness, and reveal what it is you want to reveal to us today by your word. Um, accomplish the purpose for which you've sent out this word, just as you've accomplished that purpose in my life this week. Would you do that to all who hear this word this morning? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, whenever uh, we talk about people in the past or in the present who we see as having accomplished something truly great, truly historic in their lives, there's very often like this one key defining desire, defining passion in their lives that, that we see and that they would kind of identify themselves as being this driving force behind that accomplishment. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? And, and, and that's not to say that they don't have any other desires or passions in their lives for other things, no. Only that that one singular driving passion tends to define their accomplishment. And yet, uh, whether, it's, uh, th whether that accomplishment is greatness in their sport, um, business or financial success, a physical beauty, or I don't know, just like having the most number of followers for your YouTube page, what you hear again and again when these individuals are interviewed and asked if now they feel like they've done enough, if they feel satisfied now that they've reached this highest pinnacle and peak uh, in whatever field or pursuit that they've been pursuing, what you hear again and again, the answer is no. Uh, a phenomenon I think perfectly illustrated, for example, on the life of someone like John D. Rockefeller, apparently one of the most wealthy men in the world in his day, when he was asked 
uh, after accumulating all this wealth, someone said to him, how much money is enough? To which he replied, just a little bit more. And, and we, we smile at such responses, even, even applaud them as admirable, uh, romanticizing this idea of somebody just continuing to push on to, to new heights, to, to greater horizons. And yet, think about this, the, the hope-crushing reality that nobody seems to want to talk about in their responses, in which they're clearly telling us, is that achieving the desired results of their defining passion which is already, think about that, an infinitely small number of people who can even do that, doesn't, does not bring the satisfaction in life that either they thought it would or that we think it should. Achieving the highest levels of accomplishment does not bring satisfaction. And yet I don't understand why it is. Even hearing that it doesn't, even seeing that it doesn't, somehow we still convince ourselves, just cling to this delusion that, well, no, 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 no. We, we would be satisfied by those things. I would be. I don't, I don't know what's wrong with them. If I was in their shoes, if I had their life, if I did what they did, I would be satisfied. We, we just delude ourselves to think that. Or, and this is by far the more common response by so many in our world today, we simply redefine the word satisfaction altogether. We define satisfaction to mean the fleeting temporary hit that, that we experience whenever we accumulate more of what already does not satisfy us, that, that next relationship, um, that, that new purchase on Amazon, that, uh, that, that third piece of birthday cake, whatever it is, we think, okay, no, that, that's what satisfaction is. But think about that. Making, that makes our search for satisfaction in life start to look Less and less like a driving passion and more and more like addiction. As Hungarian-Canadian physician Dr. Gabor Matei notes in his seminal work on addiction, a great book called In the Realm of the Hungry Ghosts, says this, The difference between passion and addiction is that between a divine spark and a flame that incinerates. Passion creates. Addiction consumes. And yet into that consuming, perpetually disappointing search for fulfillment, which is the daily experience of so many in our world, steps Jesus, promising this. Blessed by my Father are the citizens in my kingdom who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Now, Okay, lots of questions there. What, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What is that? And, and is this satisfaction Jesus is promising here? Is that something we can actually experience now today in this life? Or is it something we just experience some future day in heaven? Um, what is it? All great questions, actually. And I'm actually going to divide up the way we look at this fourth beatitude from our passage today in response to those questions. So I'm going to show you, first of all, the, the meaning of a righteous pursuit followed by our experience of satisfaction. So that's what we're going to look at, the, the meaning of a righteous pursuit, our experience of satisfaction. But, but, but here's the thing I don't want you to miss. Even if you forget everything else I've said, just tune out everything else I talk about this morning. Don't miss this. When the singular defining passion of your life is a pursuit of righteousness above all other pursuits, 
according to Jesus, you will know true satisfaction that can never be surpassed. When the defining singular passion of your life is the pursuit of righteousness above all other things, you can know true satisfaction. This is how you truly become satisfied, says Jesus. So let's, let's look at this. Let's, let's investigate this together. If, you, if you've closed your Bible, Bible app, whatever it is, open it again with me. Follow along as we look at our passage here, Matthew 5, now verse 6. As we investigate Jesus' promise of satisfaction to citizens in his kingdom who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Okay. So let's look first of all at the meaning of a righteous pursuit. Meaning of a righteous pursuit. So, again, as I've mentioned over the last few weeks, the structure of each one of these Beatitudes actually includes three parts. There's a statement of blessing, a statement of the identity of those who are blessed, and then finally, a statement describing the reason they're blessed. That's a structure for each one of these Beatitudes. So, in this Beatitude we're looking at today in verse 6. We have the stated blessing, commendation of the Father over citizens in his kingdom who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, that's, that's their identity. And because, the, the reason they're blessed is because they're satisfied. They've experienced this satisfaction. Now, satisfied how? Satisfied with, with what? Well, let's, let's just hold our investigation of those questions until the next point. And let's just focus here, first of all, on the identity of these blessed citizens in the kingdom, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's just focus here first, and then we'll get to that. But even if you're already somewhat familiar with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, or actually even if you're not, I think something that stands out to us right away as we read that description, hunger and thirst for righteousness, is, is the way Jesus is using physical appetites, hunger, thirst, to describe something spiritual, righteousness. You notice that? Now, this is not a new concept. It's not unique to the Beatitudes. It actually shows up all throughout the Bible. Uh, you see this, for instance, in the Old Testament. Psalms like Psalm 42, where we read, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul for you. Or later on, Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise with joyful lips. So already we're hearing that language of physical appetites describing spiritual realities. And then in the New Testament, we see the very same thing. For instance, like Jesus, John chapter 4, talking with the woman at the well, saying, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. Or then just a little bit later in John 6, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, so we're seeing that concept already established and show up all throughout the Bible, so it's not new and unique here, but one of the things you may have noticed there, particularly in those Old Testament references about hungering and thirsting for spiritual things, is that the, the, the hunger and thirst being described there is a life-threatening hunger, a life-threatening thirst set in the context of things like drought and famine. Do you notice that? Which means, listen... That, that because that very same sense of hungering and thirsting is actually applied here in our passage in this beatitude. Hungering and thirsting like that, it means we can't look at Jesus' description here of a pursuit of righteousness like you would pursue a snack in the cupboard in the afternoon between lunch and dinner. 
It's not like that. No, it's a pursuit on the level of if I don't receive some sustenance in the next little while here, I'm not going to survive. And, and not in the way like we say that today and just complain and whine, oh, I'm, I'm going to die, I'm starving. Like in a way, like literally, you're not going to make it if you don't get something to eat or drink in the next 24 hours. Like that. I'd say the majority of us who, who might claim that we are a follower of Jesus, I think majority of us would say we understand that first kind of pursuit of righteousness. I wonder how many of us would say that we experience and continue to experience the second. And what is it that Jesus says we are to hunger and thirst for as though our lives depended on it? To hunger and thirst with that level of desperation? Jesus says, the blessing of the Father is spoken over those in his kingdom who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, righteous. Uh, that's, that's because we're not in the 1960s uh, or we don't talk like that turtle character from Finding Nemo, righteous. Um, that's just not a word we use very often today. Uh, we don't talk like that a lot. Uh, and, and if you do hear that word a lot, um, it's, you'll probably hear it like in a church context, like something we talk about here. We talk about righteousness as describing God's holy, perfect character. And it's something that we say is, is credited to us when we put our faith in Jesus. We receive his righteousness like that. Or you know, very often you just hear it everywhere today, the word righteous in a negative sense, where people are talking about those who just see themselves as better than everyone else. Self-righteous. Um, that's how you'll often hear the word used. But interestingly, when we come to that word righteous or righteousness, what most commentators point out, and we need to understand this here, is that while righteousness, right standing before God, credited to us through Jesus, that we often read about in, in books uh, written by the Apostle Paul, like Romans, is that sense is definitely included in Matthew. The primary, way, the primary way righteousness is used and understood in the Gospel of Matthew is actually describing righteous conduct, righteous or just living, living in a just way. So not the credited righteousness that we receive free by just putting our faith in Jesus, but more like what's described in Psalm chapter 4 when David says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness for your name's sake because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So this path of righteousness that we walk. That, that's more the way Matthew uses this term. But again, remembering that the Beatitudes are a description of somebody who's already a citizen in the kingdom, right? So thus they've already received that credited righteousness. This means that ultimately what Jesus is describing here that we need to continually hunger and thirst for is, uh, for instance, as, as James talks about in James chapter 1, we need to hunger and thirst to be those who are not only hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves, but doers of the word. We need to be those who hunger and thirst to walk as Jesus walked. As 1 John 2 says, we need to be those who hunger and thirst to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. And I hope I say this often enough here, but I think it's worth repeating here in light of what we just said here. Righteous living, righteous conduct, as the Bible speaks of it, is never about earning our right standing before God. Nor is it about maintaining or improving your righteous standing once you've received it by faith. No, holiness, 
uh, righteous living is instead always and ever described as our grateful response to the free gift of a right standing before God, never the cause of it. We don't act righteously in order to become righteous before God. We, we, we act and live righteously because he's made us righteous. It's our grateful response to what he's done. And yet, having said that, as D.A. Carson says so simply and powerfully, the gospel, while it may be opposed to earning, is not opposed to effort, which I think fits very well with what Matthew is describing here about righteous living and righteous conduct. To strive and hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's not opposed to the gospel. That's our grateful response to the truth of the gospel that set us free and made us righteous. But as you think about how to apply this to your own life as a citizen in the kingdom, I think there's actually two important questions that you need to ask yourself. How do I hunger and thirst for righteousness myself? And the first question I think you need to ask yourself is this, am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness with a sufficient passion? Am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness with a sufficient passion? Which, listen, that that isn't for a moment to suggest that following Jesus means we need to just work ourselves up into this really big emotional frenzy, that that's what it means uh, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, or that I can't have any other passions or pursuits in my life especially not really passionate pursuits, anything like that, because think about what that would mean for marriage and family relationships or school or work pursuits if it did. It's not saying we can't have any other passions or pursuits in our lives. No, what I mean is this. Is my pursuit of righteousness a defining passion in my life? Is my pursuit of righteousness the primary pursuit in my life above all others in the way that perfecting a golf swing is to Tiger Woods? That that pursuit of excellence defines his passion and his achievement. Does the pursuit of righteousness above all other things define your life as a citizen in the kingdom? Am I I pursuing a life of love and justice and mercy and, and, and holiness and meekness and all these things as though my life depended on it? Am I running the race marked out before me like I'm actually trying to win, like Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9? Or is my pursuit of righteousness really just one among many cherished pursuits in my life and, and one that regularly takes a back seat to whatever happens to be more pressing in the moment? And just again and again, there always seems to be something more pressing. So that's the first question. Am I pursuing righteousness? Am I hungering and thirsting with sufficient passion? The the second question we need to consider as we try to apply this to ourselves and understand what this means and, and hopefully receive the satisfaction Jesus is talking about is to ask ourselves the question, to whom am I to act justly? And righteously. Who am I supposed to act justly and righteously to? And I think you need to know the answer to that question because, again, living, as we talked about last week, in this hyper individualistic society, the unconscious default of many of us can, can just be to see this passionate pursuit of righteousness as something in this entirely individualistic way that it's just about me and my own personal holiness. That's, that's all that's being described here. It's just me and my relationship. My right relationship with God, my own personal holiness, living rightly before him myself. That's all it means. Which, Listen, 
Hungering and thirsting for righteousness absolutely includes your own personal holiness. Don't hear me saying it doesn't. And yet, as John Stott notes so powerfully, listen, biblical righteousness is more than a private and personal affair. It includes social righteousness as well. Social righteousness, as we learn from the law and the prophets, is concerned with seeking liberation from oppression, together with the promotion of civil rights, justice in the law courts, integrity in business dealings, and honor in the home and family affairs. Thus, he concludes, Christians are committed to hunger for righteousness in the whole human community as something pleasing to a righteous God. Which means, if our answer to the question, to whom am I to act justly and righteously to, ends with me, ends just with us and and our own moral, righteous character and conduct before God alone, what that means is that we're actually still missing something of the fullness of this beatitude. And I think the result being we also miss something of the fullness of the satisfaction that Jesus offers Because while yes and amen, our righteous living before God as individuals is, it's of the utmost importance in our lives as citizens of the kingdom. The reason we support organizations like International Justice Mission, Compassion Canada, Wings, Vancouver Urban Ministries, the the reason we support those ministries as a church is because we believe our hungering and thirsting for righteousness doesn't end with us but must extend to how we live before those around us as well, how we seek justice and righteousness for them as well. Hear me. Seeking justice and righteousness in our world, regardless of whether people share our beliefs, whether they share our values, whether they ever step foot inside this church building, it means we seek justice and righteousness for them as well, regardless of those things. It means... It means when women and children have to flee their homes because of abusive fathers. It means when women in certain countries can't pursue education or or careers simply because of their sex. It means when, when gay or transgendered people are pulled out into the street and publicly beaten to death. It means when children are bought and sold and exploited, traded like market animals. Listen, all people... People, like, forget the labels for a second. All of these are people made in the image and likeness of God, valuable and precious to Him. In, in these and every other place where righteousness is not seen, is not practiced, is not known, to hunger and thirst for righteousness also means the church shows up there. We show up in those places. We get in, get our hands dirty, we help, we give, we sit and weep and pray with people. We seek righteousness for them in this world as well. Not in a saving way, but in a way of pursuing justice for them. As a pleasing to a holy and just and righteous God. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? to walk justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. That it will be a defining pursuit of your life. 
and that it would extend beyond your own relationship with God to seeking justice and righteousness for all. That's what it means. That's the fullness. For whom and to whom we are to act justly. So much more I want to say there, but that's the meaning of a righteous pursuit. Last thing I want us to look at together with you this morning is the satisfaction, Jesus says, is the blessed result for citizens in his kingdom. The blessed result for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in this way that would be described as a defining passion in your life. So let's look lastly here at our experience of satisfaction. Our experience of satisfaction. And I think it's important, uh, as just as we begin here, to define what Jesus means when he talks about our being satisfied. Because again, as we said earlier, uh, many of us have simply resigned ourselves to this sad yet attainable redefinition of the word. Or, just given the complexity of the English language, sometimes I think we wrongly understand the word satisfaction to just mean satisfactory. But when we understand that the word Jesus uses here to describe the reward of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is the exact same word used later in Matthew 14 after Jesus has fed the 5,000 men and their families and it says, and they all ate and were satisfied. Exact same word used there. We see that what Jesus means by satisfied is to be filled to the full. To, to be fed to complete satisfaction so that you don't want or even desire anything further. Think Thanksgiving dinner after that. You've already had that second round of filling up your plate and someone offers you mashed potatoes and you're just like, oh, no, thank you. That, that kind of fullness. That kind of fullness and, and satisfaction is what Jesus is, is intending here by talking about and we will be satisfied. But at the same time, it's, it's hard for us even to imagine that because, as I said uh, again and again, we, we've seen and experienced actually finding satisfaction in this life just feels like this, we can never get it. No matter what we are trying to grasp at and however we redefine the word, we can never get satisfaction. Even those who've achieved those highest achievements in their fields still haven't achieved it. We can start to feel like maybe finding satisfaction in life just isn't possible. And I know, uh, thinking of being satisfied, some of you who are fans of the musical Hamilton might, might remember Alexander Hamilton. He defines himself as someone who's never been satisfied. And he almost kind of wears that like a badge of courage, like there's nothing that's been able to satisfy me so far in this life. But think about that. Even there, he's not saying that he doesn't still desire to be satisfied, only just that he hasn't been yet. And yet the promise of Jesus here for citizens of his kingdom, is that for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, with that passionate, sufficiently passionate pursuit, that we pursue that at least first, like Jesus says, pursue the kingdom and righteousness first, and all those other things will be added. He says when you do that, you can at last find the satisfaction that's been impossible to find in every other pursuit of your life. He says you can actually find it here. Jesus says satisfaction can truly be found when having entered into a restored relationship with God by faith in him, that's, that's the credited righteousness part, we seek now to live righteous lives before him and others as our grateful response for him having redeemed us and made us citizens. Basically what, what Jesus is saying is when you continually seek more and more of me, Seek to, to align your lives in a greater and greater way with how I design life and the world and, and you to work. 
When you do that more and more, you'll find that I'm able to satisfy the hunger and thirst in your life to the full in a way that nothing else can and in a way that requires no substitutes or supplements. You can find that satisfaction in me, says Jesus. It's almost too good to be true. And yet here's the promise of Jesus. Now, fun fact here, as as you're growing and learning in your understanding, to, to learning to understand and interpret the Bible for yourself, as, as you read, I hope, that is a pursuit of yours. When you think about how can I experience this satisfaction in my own life, one way, a simple tool that can help you get to application, whatever passage it is you happen to be studying, very often a simple tool you can use is to take the passage that you're looking at and then flip it and state it in the negative. It's very often a very simple tool, not all the time, but in a lot of cases can help you get to what I'm supposed to do or not do based on a command in, in the scriptures. So let's, let's try it here. Uh, uh, Jesus uh, says this, he tells kingdom citizens in this beatitude that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied, right? Is that, is that correct? Is that what Jesus said? Yes. Now, flip that beatitude and let's state it negatively. We now see that Jesus is telling us those who don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who seek to fill their hunger and thirst with something other than righteousness, will continue to remain unsatisfied. You see that? Just by flipping it over, we can get a little bit more of an application. And so think of it this way. In the same way that when I go in to see the doctor and I tell him or her that I'm not feeling well, I tell them that my health is, doesn't, doesn't feel great and my energy feels low. One of the first questions they're going to ask me is what? They're going to ask me about my diet. Tell me about how you're feeding yourself, what kind of things you, that, that you're giving your body so that you're not feeling the energy and the health that, you, that, you're, that you're seeking. Tell me about how you're eating. So taking that application now and just following it through. You and me, let's say you're coming to me one day, we're talking to each other, of course, socially distanced, uh, wearing a mask, whatever, but you're coming to me, you're, you're, you're talking one day and you say to me, I don't understand it, I don't know what's going on, it's like, I, I know I'm a follower of Jesus, I, I know I'm a citizen in this kingdom, I believe that, and yet I still don't feel the satisfaction that Jesus promises in my life, I don't know what's going on. You say that to me, one of the first responses I'm going to give back to you is I'm going to say, right. Oh, man, I know I felt exactly that same way in my own life, too. And you know what? you know what the answer was for me? Nine times out of ten, I found the reason I was feeling that way is because I was trying to find satisfaction in places other than Jesus. I was trying to feed the hunger and thirst of my soul in places other than righteousness. That's, that was the answer for me. How about you? T- tell me about your life right now. What have you been feeding on? What have you been feeding on that isn't the bread of life, that isn't the water that Jesus promises will satisfy your hunger and thirst to the full? What, what have you been eating? So <clears throat> let's, just, let's just play this out. What, what is it? How, how would you respond if, if I asked you that question? Let's take a moment and pause and think about the answer to that. What have you been feeding on that, that isn't the food and the, the drink that Jesus offers 
What have you been feeding on other than him? If, if you're not feeling the satisfaction that he says we can have in hungering and thirsting for righteousness, what else have you been feeding on? Because here's the thing. I can and do, probably like you, I can and do enjoy all kinds of food that's not good for me. That's, that's a part of my diet. It is. But if I decide that that's going to be the primary place I eat and drink, if my regular diet that I fill myself with and seek satisfaction with is bags of Doritos and like two liters of Mountain Dew or something like that, if that's how I satisfy my hunger and thirst, instead of feeding on things that are truly going to nourish my body, like the results of that are pretty quickly going to be seen, right? Because here's what's true, and I need you to hear me. Focus on what I'm saying here. This is so important. Our experience of satisfaction in Jesus stops. It does. Our experience of satisfaction in Jesus stops, not because he has ceased to be enough to satisfy us, but because we've ceased to be fed on him alone. We've gone back to try to feed on those things that we used to try to find satisfaction in before we knew him. That's what's going on there. It's why we, we can't see it in the English here, but the verbs in the Greek, hunger and thirst, are actually stated in the present active sense because hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not a one-time, one-and-done thing in the Christian life. No, <coughs> we need to continually hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which means, if your experience of satisfaction in Jesus feels empty, feels incomplete today. It's not everything. But one of the very first places to check is your diet. It's one of the very first places we can check. And yet maybe a question <clears throat> that you've been wondering about, I know I, know I wonder, as I've been studying this this week, question maybe you're asking yourself is, okay, if Jesus satisfies my hunger and thirst in the way that he's promising here, how come I have to keep hungering and thirsting for him? Like, what's going on there? If, if he's really enough to satisfy me, why do I need to keep feeding and drinking of him if I've already done that? N another great question. I think there's, there's probably a number of reasons for that. The very first being... Uh, that, that as finite beings, I think our capacity to hold and experience all the fullness of what Jesus offers, we don't, we don't have the capacity to do that as finite beings. He's got so much more than we could ever hold. So that's part of why we have to keep coming back to feed and, and drink of him. But another is, is that this is true for all of us. Living in a broken world, stained and infected by sin's curse, our present containers holding the fullness that he gives us continue to be punctured. We get holes punctured in them both by the destructive, hurtful actions of others as well as our own proneness to wander, as the old hymn says, and seeking satisfaction in those things again that will not satisfy us. I don't know why it is. It's as though we experience fullness in Jesus, satisfaction in him, and then we start thinking, yeah, but maybe... Maybe that stuff that I used to try, which didn't satisfy me, maybe now it will, and I start feeding on that again. And that's the reason we need to keep coming back and filling and being satisfied in him in this life anyway. Uh, as C.S. Lewis, he said so famously, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Which is why, although we can and do experience satisfaction in Jesus when we hunger and thirst for him alone in this life, above all other things, the ultimate, the eternal fulfillment of this promises for citizens in God's kingdom is something that we will not know eternally and fully until his return. When, when he sets up his kingdom rule at last for all time on this earth, when heaven and earth become one. As we read about in Revelation 7, this beautiful picture where John writes, Therefore they are before the throne of God. They serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, I long for that day. Jesus, bring that day. Because that will be the day when we finally and for all time are satisfied in Jesus. Which, as we've seen, doesn't mean Jesus' promise for satisfaction can't still be experienced in this life. Today, it can. Only that on that day, our capacity for, as well as our ability to contain and maintain that sense of satisfaction will be forever secured. And as we long for that future day, and I hope you do, as we long for that future day, and, and in light of the container puncturing blows that we continue to experience, that we will continue to experience in this present life, may the cry of our hearts ever be, because we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to leave the God we love. May the cry of our hearts ever be as that same hymn concludes. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's this container that you've poured all your fullness into. Would you take and seal it now? Seal it for your courts above.